أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد We continue our journey into exploring the life of the Messenger of God the Holy Prophet Muhammad and we're examining his life before his messengerhood now, before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the Holy Quran and commanded him to preach the message of Islam. Previously we examined how the Prophet was raised by Halima al-Sa'diyya who nursed him and she took care of him for five to six years. Now in his early youth, when the Prophet was you know, a preteen or a teenager, what is something that he was normally occupied with? We have a number of narrations and hadiths that the Prophet before he got married, there were many times in which he would be a shepherd. He would have a flock to take care of and he would be a shepherd. In fact, not only him, but we have narrations that almost all prophets of God were shepherds. We have a hadith from Al-Imam As-Sadiq in which he says, مَا بَعَثَ اللَّهُ نَبِيًّا قَطْ حَتَّى يَسْتَرْعِيهِ الْغَنَمْ Every prophet of God whom God sent to humanity, at one point in their life, God had them be shepherds. Why? بِذَلِكَ وَيُعَلِّمُهُ بِذَلِكَ رَعْيَهُ النَّاسِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is training His prophets to now lead the people. Once you learn to lead your flock, that teaches you a lot of leadership skills, right? Because when you have to lead a group of sheep, it's difficult, it's challenging, you learn patience, you learn how to organize them. If one of them is not following, it's slower, it's faster, you have to all, you have to keep them all in one group. So one of the ways in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would teach His Prophet's leadership skills, it would start with what? With the animals, with the sheep. And that really teaches you a lot of leadership skills. Now with our Messenger of God, obviously he did not need to develop any leadership skills. He was chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's the greatest human being of God. He was directly disciplined by God. In one hadith, the Prophet says, Rabbi. God is the one who disciplined me and taught me the skills that I have. So the Prophet doesn't really need to train himself over a flock of sheep for him to develop any leadership skills. So what was the philosophy then? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala according to these historical accounts have his messenger at some points in his early life be a shepherd? Two primary reasons. Number one, to show his humble origins. That the Prophet is a man of humbleness. And that really teaches you humbleness. And not only that, but it shows clearly that you were not educated by some prestigious university, school, group, or society. People knew that the Prophet in his youth, he was not going to school and studying. He was not learning how to read and write. He would spend a lot of his time looking after his herd being a shepherd. So where did he suddenly get the Qur'an from? That was an indication from God that the Prophet did not study under anyone. Because when a shepherd brings you a message, you're shocked. Where did he learn that from? Which school did he go to? Who raised him and educated him? So to show that humble origin and to make it clearer that the Holy Qur'an is the miracle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, one reason could have been for the Prophet being a shepherd was this, to get that across. That's number one. Number two, 
A shepherd spends a lot of time in the open field, under the sky, in quiet, beautiful environment. That actually gives you a chance to meditate and reflect and worship God under the stars. Just as the Prophet would do in Mecca after his marriage, when he would go to the cave of Hira, right? He would go there, why? Not to be secluded or isolate himself from society or be anti-social, no. But to meditate and prepare himself for that heavy message for the Holy Quran, for the revelation from God. So being a shepherd in your early stages of your life actually gives you the opportunity to spend some time away from your corrupt society, paganistic customs and traditions, and to actually connect to your Lord under the open skies. That was a very good opportunity. So we believe that, well, there are some Muslims who say the Prophet needed those leadership skills. We don't accept that. We, the followers of Ahlul Bayt, we say the Prophet was disciplined by God. He was chosen by God. He didn't need to go and practice on a herd of sheep for him to develop leadership skills. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala endowed him with those skills, but he did so pri primarily for these two reasons. To indicate his humble origins, and number two, to have that private time with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in an open desert under the sky, under the stars. So we do have historical accounts that indicate the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi would spend a lot of time you know, taking care of, of a herd, especially the sheep that belonged to Bani Hashim. A lot of times the Prophet would go around Mecca and he would be the shepherd for that herd that belonged to his family, either to his uncle Abu Talib or his distant relatives from Bani Hashim. So that's one of the things that we see the Prophet being busy with. What else? Did the Prophet participate in any battles before Islam? We know after the religion of Islam, the Prophet was present in a number of battles, defensive battles, the pagans wanted to attack him, so the Prophet was there. Now in the battlefield, the Prophet did not fight because he was protected by his companions and primarily by Imam Ali salam. he didn't need to fight. And there was a reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not want him to fight, not to repel the people, because if the leader is directly fighting you, that makes you develop a stance against him. And Allah wanted them not to have an excuse, not to say that Muhammad is killing people, even in the battlefield, even if he has the right, but Allah did not want to give them that excuse. So generally speaking, the Prophet would not fight in the battlefield, he'd be present guiding his army. What about in those early years when he was a teenager? Did he participate in any battle or no? We see that in the times of Jahiliyyah, pre-Islamic Arabia, you have what is called the Fujjar battles, the bad battles, right? The evil battles, the not so virtuous battles. What happened is that in pre-Islamic Arabia, the Arab tribes would constantly be fighting with each other. This was part of everyday life. On the pettiest issues, sometimes you would have a horse race between some of the tribes amongst them, and they dispute who won the race. As a result of that dispute, sometimes they would fight with each other for a hundred years over a horse race. Petty things like that. Now, there were four months in pre-Islamic Arabia that were considered sacred months. The Arabs have decided, look, if we want to fight throughout the whole year, we can't live. We can't develop our economy. When can we trade, buy and sell? There's no peace. So this, they decided four months out of the year, let us stop all fighting and just be friends. Those months were Rajab, Dhul Qa'da, Dhul Hijjah, and Muharram. Rajab is the sixth month in the Islamic calendar, sixth or seventh, the seventh month in the Islamic calendar. Dhul Qa'da and Dhul Hijjah are the 11th and 12th months, so like equivalent to November and December. And then we have Muharram, which is the first month of the year. 
No, Ramadan was not considered a sacred month. So in these four months, they'd stop all battles, fighting. They'd come to the market, everyone coming with their goods and products, selling them, and everybody just becomes friends and nobody's attacking each other. Yes. You said this is pre-Islamic? Yeah, this was pre-Islamic Arabia. Al-Ashhur al-Hurum, the sacred months. This existed before the religion of Islam. So the Arabs agreed in these four months, let's not fight. So you'd see the markets in, in, uh, you know, in Mecca bustling, they're vibrant, there's a lot of economic development, people would come in the market, a lot of the poets would come, they would boast about themselves and their tribes and every tribe is bragging about their victories, right? But they all agreed, let's not fight in these four months. However, it happened that about four or five, five times, this agreement that you should not fight in the sacred months was violated. And you had battles in those sacred months as a result of petty skirmishes. We call those battles the Fujjar battles. Battles that occurred in those sacred months, they started in the sacred months, now many of them lasted, outlasted those months, outlived those months, they continued sometimes for a few years, but they occurred in those four months. We call them the Fujjar battles, why? Because the Arabs had agreed that you should not fight in these four months, but sometimes, you know, one aggressor would kill another one from another tribe and a war is sparked between them. Now the question is, did the Prophet ﷺ participate in any of these battles or no? It has been narrated in historical accounts that he did. When he was a teenager, between the ages of 16 and 20, he participated in the fourth Fujjar battle. Basically a skirmish happened between one members of the Hawazin tribe. The Hawazin tribe was a well-known tribe in and around Mecca. A member of the Hawazin tribe was killed by one member of the Kanana tribe, he killed a member of the Hawazin tribe in those sacred four months. They were not supposed to in the market, in the market for you know reasons, um, petty reasons, for jealousy that he was you know selling his products. Has a story to it. In any case, one member of the Kanana tribe he kills one member of the Hawazin tribe. Now Quraysh which is the tribe of the Holy Prophet and some other tribes, the main tribe in Mecca. Quraysh was an ally of Kanana. In pre-Islamic Arabia, if you go to war with one tribe, you go to war with all those other tribes that have an alliance with it as well. So now Hawazin want to seek revenge. Hey, one of our members got killed. We'll teach you a lesson, Kanana, the tribe of Kanana. Now Quraysh, had an alliance with Kanana, so Hawazin automatically declared war not only on Kanana, let's say they were aggressors, okay, but also on Quraysh who had nothing to do with it. So Quraysh and Kanana, they had to leave, you know, they, they started running away from Mecca, not to have any bloodshed, especially in the Grand Mosque and Masjid al-Haram by the Kaaba. In any case, that war lasted for about four years. Four years, four years yes. So some historical accounts mention that the family of the Prophet, the Prophet himself participated in that battle because the Hawazin were now be becoming aggressors and for no reason they attacked Quraysh. So the Prophet, he went to this battle, he would protect his uncles from being shot with the arrows. He would intercept the arrows to protect his uncles. So this is what we have in a number of historical accounts. Do we accept this or not? This is the common version that you will hear from about the Prophet's biography that he participated in this Fujjar battle. Our scholars, a number of them have an issue with this. They don't believe this to be accurate, they dispute the fact that the Messenger of God participated in any of these battles for a number of reasons. Number one, if you look at the life of the Prophet and his relationship with Abu Talib, his uncle who was so concerned about him, 
It's very, very unlikely that Abu Talib, who knew this boy would be a messenger, and he was overprotective, right? It's very unlikely that he would let him come and join a battle to defend his uncles and intercept the arrows because when you intercept the arrows, you expose yourself to those arrows. Abu Talib would not have let that happen. Abu Talib, he himself would protect the Prophet. He wouldn't ask the Prophet to come and protect him and his other brothers, meaning the uncles of the Prophet. It's very unlikely that Abu Talib would have allowed that. Very unlikely. You know, have the Prophet, hey, go and defend us, you know, make sure no arrow reaches us. That's very unlikely. Number two, this battle started in the sacred months. It's a Fujar battle. It's an unjust battle. So some scholars have an issue, the Prophet, why would he participate in such a battle? In fact, there is actually a hadith that we find narrated by even Sunni scholars like Yaqubi. Yaqubi is a Sunni scholar. He says it has been narrated that Abu Talib, he banned any members of Bani Hashim meaning his immediate relatives and direct cousins, from participating in any of those battles, including this fourth battle of Fujar. And he said, this is unjust, this is aggression, and we're severing ties with our distant relatives because all of these were distant cousins. These tribes, they pretty much came from the same family tree in Mecca. And this is violating the sacred months. We the Bani Hashim, we will not fight in the sacred months. So he banned anyone from going and he said, I will not attend this battle and my immediate relatives should not attend as well. And they did not attend. So we have actually a historical hadith over here that tells us Abu Talib banned Bani Hashim. So how can we say that the Prophet went and he participated? So some scholars dispute the fact that the Prophet participated in any of those battles. It's not proven to us. Now you could say you've got arguments to both sides, yes, we do have indications that he did, we do have indications that he didn't. So at the end of the day, there's some contradiction amongst these pieces of evidence. So we cannot firmly state that the Prophet participated in that battle. Assuming he did, then it must have been a just war, definitely, because the Prophet will not join an unjust war. If we say that he did, probably the Hawazin tribe were the aggressors. Now we don't exactly know after 15 centuries, we don't exactly know the details of those wars. A lot of details got lost in history. So maybe they were the aggressors and the Prophet was being defensive, you know, just defending himself and, and his town and his family. So in any case, just know that not all scholars do accept that. They dispute that the Prophet would actually participate in that battle. So we have these Fujar battles and one of them lasted for about four years. The Prophet was from 16 to 20 years old when he supposedly participated in some of these battles. Now you see also something significant happening during the Prophet's youth when he was a teenager, probably around the age of 20 years old you had a very important event that happened, it's called Hilf al-Fudul, the Alliance of Justice. Basically, as Zubair ibn Abdul Muttalib, the uncle, one of the uncles of the Prophet, he gathered his family and relatives in Mecca and he said, look, a lot of these Arab tribes, they're killing each other, they're oppressing one another, they're being aggressive, let's make an alliance of justice such that we will defend the truth, we will defend justice and we will stop the aggressors, even if it's one of us. If we see anyone from us in Mecca transgressing, let's make an alliance that will stop them. Now why was this significant? Because in pre-Islamic Arabia you did not have such a mentality. It's about my tribe. I'll go to war if my tribe is attacked. I don't care if my tribe, is, my tribe is right or wrong, it doesn't matter. They had that severe tribal mentality. 
I'll help my tribesmen even if they're wrong, even if they went and they killed and they rampaged and they raided towns, but hey, as long as they're my tribe, I'm going to go with them. That's called the tribal mentality. This was not something unique. They were saying, we will stand. Let's make an alliance to stand with the oppressed, to stand with justice wherever it is. Whether it's us or someone else, we'll stand with the truth and with justice. So this was actually something unique. So we have historical accounts indicating the Prophet he participated in that oath of fudul, hilf al-fudul, the oath of justice or the alliance of justice. He was present when this happened, when that meeting was taking place. The Prophet was actually present and it happened in the house of Abdullah ibn Jad'an in Mecca. In his house, they conducted that meeting. It seems that it was, uh, you know, as Zubair ibn Abdul Muttalib's idea, one of the uncles of the Prophet. The Prophet attended and he said, yes, I will take this oath. Because it is an oath of justice, I will take it. So the Prophet actually made some alliance even before he became a messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Oh, he was not more than 20 years old, maximum 20. So this was right after the Fujjar battle ended. That Fujjar battle, 16 to 20 years old the Prophet was, after that battle ended, as Zubair said, look, let's stop this, no more wars, according to, you know, uh, to your tribe, let's stand with the oppressed, let's stand with the justice. The Prophet said, that's a great idea, that's something I want to be a part of. And he went and he actually did take that oath. Now it has been mentioned in a hadith that the Prophet ﷺ, later on in his life when he was a messenger and when he declared the Islam, he did refer to this alliance. He says that was an honorable alliance that happened in pre-Islamic Arabia and if I were to be asked today to come and to participate in an oath like that, I would do it again. So we see the Prophet actually had a lot of respect for this alliance. Now what does this teach us though? It teaches us a number of things. First of all, it teaches us the Prophet even when he was a teenager or 20 years old, he was after the truth. Even if it went against his own tribe of Quraysh, didn't matter. The Prophet was a man of truth and he really demonstrated that in this Hilf al-Fudul. Secondly, we see that those who made this oath, most of them, were they Muslim or pagans? Most of them were pagans. Yes, a few were Muslim like Abu Talib, right? He was Muslim in the sense that he believed in God. He was a worshiper of Allah, he was not a pagan. But the other uncles of the Prophet, right? They were pagans, they worshiped the idols. A lot of the members of Quraysh, they were pagans and the Prophet despised idol worshiping. However, when he saw that they made an honorable oath, he joined them. What does that demonstrate? That demonstrates that when it comes to justice, don't look at the religion of people. Doesn't matter what their religion is. Muslim, non-Muslim, Christian, Jewish, atheist, Buddhist, it doesn't matter. If it's an act of justice and you're standing with the oppressed and you're rejecting oppression, then go for it. Don't look at the religion of those people. This is what the Prophet demonstrates to us. Even though they were pagans, but they were doing something right. They had a just cause. Whenever there's a just cause, be a part of it, regardless of that religion. So this is something that we learn from the life of the Holy Prophet even way before his prophethood. This is when he was only you know, a teenager or 20 years old. So we see that the Prophet participated in this important event. What other important events happened before the marriage of the Prophet? Yes, sister. Ibn Jad'an, Jim, Dal, Ain, Alif Noon, Jad'an. He was, you know, well known in Mecca. He was one of the prominent figures of Meccan society. They had the meeting in that house. And the Prophet, in this hadith, after he became a messenger, he said, 
if today I am invited to the house of Abdullah ibn Jad'an to make an oath similar to that, I will make it. In other words, he's saying, just as I made an oath of justice, I'll do it again. So this is a significant event in the Prophet's life and this, is, this was an, actually an amazing alliance, an oath that really brought a lot of security and peace to the city of Mecca. It really ended a lot of those wars and tribal skirmishes. What other significant event happened in the Prophet's life before his marriage? We see that when it comes to the Kaaba, the Kaaba had a very special status in Meccan society, in the Arabian Peninsula and in the world at the time. The, the Kaaba was first built by who? Who was the first to build the Kaaba? Adam alayhi salam. He was the first to build it, then it was rebuilt by Ibrahim. The Quran tells us how Ibrahim السلام, he built the Kaaba. The first one to build it was Adam, then it was destroyed for many centuries or you know a number of years. Then Ibrahim السلام, was commanded by God to rebuild the Kaaba. Now throughout the ages the Kaaba would commonly get destroyed either by floods, by wars, by maybe erosion, by fires, by natural disasters, earthquakes maybe. So it would be common for the Kaaba to be destroyed and rebuilt. This happened during the Prophet's life. When he was young, in his youth, the Kaaba, according to historical reports, was destroyed. How was it destroyed? We've got two sources that tell us how. One says there was a flood, a heavy thunder shower occurred in Mecca and it's you know, in the vicinity of Mecca. And Mecca, if you've been to it, it's very hilly. You've, it's mountainous, rugged terrain. And the Kaaba is actually in a low-lying area. And there's no vegetation on the mountains. It's just you know, barren mountains. So when you've got a heavy rain, immediately you get a flash flood. So the flood came and it destroyed the Kaaba. Or it did severe damage to its foundation. So that's one historical account. Another one says, no, actually there was a woman, you know, who was doing bukhur around the Kaaba. What's bukhur? You've seen those uh, aromatic, I don't know, what, what do you call them? It's a type of perfume that you put the charcoal on to get the nice aroma out, right? What would you call that in English? Incense, a type of incense. So she was burning incense around the Kaaba. When that incense sparked a fire to the Kaaba, because the Kaaba was clothed, right? Even today, the Kaaba is not just a bare building. You have that clothing on it, that piece of cloth. So that incense, incense caused a fire around the Kaaba and it burned. So now the tribes who were in Mecca, they wanted to rebuild the Kaaba. So they said, hey, no tribe should have this honor to themselves only, let's all participate. So all the major tribes, they decided, okay, let's go and get the building material and each tribe should be assigned a corner, one of the corners of the Kaaba, let's all build it together so that we all collectively have this honor. They agreed, no problems, everything went smoothly here. Then the time came to attach and fix the black stone, the Hajar al-Aswad to the Kaaba. The black stone is a very holy stone. We have hadiths that this stone was actually delivered by Allah through an angel Jibra'il. He brought it down to earth, it comes from paradise, it has a heavenly origin. And the hadith says initially, it was white like snow, but because of the sins of people throughout history, it became black. There's an angel that is constantly standing by the Hajar al-Aswad, witnessing for those who do the tawaf around the Kaaba, they circle around the Kaaba, and they do their Hajj or their Umrah, and this angel will witness for you on the Day of Judgment that you came and worshipped Allah in this place. Yes. That's why if you see, for those who've gone to the Hajj or if you've seen any documentaries about the Tawaf, you see people when they finish one full round, 
Because the round starts where? At Hajar al-Aswad. It's adjacent to Hajar al-Aswad, right? That's where the round starts. That's how you count seven rounds. You start at Hajar al-Aswad, you end at the black stone. So when you finish the first round, you see the pilgrims, they turn their face to the stone and they talk to the stone. They give their salam, Allahu Akbar, you say your salam to the stone and then you talk to the stone. Amanati addaituha, the covenant that Allah has placed on me, I have now conveyed it by worshiping God. You actually talk to the stone and say, witness for me that I have done my hajj. So now, they wanted to erect the black stone and attach it and fix it to the Kaaba. There was an argument, which tribe is going to do that? Because now each tribe wants that honor to them. Because when you take the black stone and you put it on the Kaaba, that gives you superiority in Meccan society. That means you're in charge of Masjid al-Haram. You're closer to the house of God. So they started quarreling, fighting amongst themselves until they were, they were about to, it was about to erupt into a full-fledged war. They wanted to fight and kill each other. In fact, some of them dipped their hands in blood and they said, we'll not settle this. We will kill and fight until we get the honor of mounting the Hajar al-Aswad. Now, what happened at that point? At that point, right before the war erupted, we see that Abu Umayyah ibn al-Mughira. Abu Umayyah was the father of Umm Salama. Who's Umm Salama? Anyone know? Wife of the Prophet. She was one of the wives of the Prophet, one of the best wives of the Prophet. The best wife was Khadija, then Umm Salama. Umm Salama, her father, was present when he saw them about to fight. He's like, look, let's not fight. Whoever enters the Grand Mosque, the first person to enter the Masjid, let him be the judge. Whatever he decide, decides, we'll, we'll accept. They're like, okay, we agree to your suggestion. Who was the first person who entered? The Holy Prophet Muhammad He was the first person to enter. Remember, he was a young man at the, at the time, just a youth. He entered, they told him, okay, Muhammad, come and solve this crisis for us. The Prophet said, okay, you accept me as the judge? They're like, yes, we accept you as the judge. So he's like, get me a big piece of cloth, a sheet, a big sheet. They're like, why? He's like, bring it, I'll tell you why. They bring a sheet. He takes the black stone, he puts it in the middle. Now the sheet has four corners, right? Four sides. He says, you the four main tribes, each tribe take, lift one corner of that, one side of that cloth. Together, let's carry it to the Kaaba and we'll put it on the Kaaba. They're like, brilliant idea. That way we can all say we put the black stone and no one is going to act superior to the others and we'll end this controversy right here. So they loved the idea of the Prophet. So they all carried it and they went to the Kaaba and the Prophet once they raised the piece of cloth and the black stone was at the level of where it should be fixed on the Kaaba, mountain on the Kaaba. The Prophet, he himself, he took the black stone and he put it on the Kaaba. And everyone just agreed. No one said, hey, why are you the last person, you know, to take the black stone and put it on the Kaaba? And this actually shows and reveals the status of the Prophet. Even though he was the boy, you know, a young man, a teenager probably, not more than 20 probably, Yet they had so much respect for him that everybody loved his idea and everybody was okay that he was the one who in the end he put it on the Kaaba. So that's very interesting that we see he really had a lot of respect. Yes. Abu Umayyah ibn al-Mughira, the father of Umm Salama. So the father-in-law of the Holy Prophet Now of course at that time he wasn't the father-in-law. You know, later, Umm Salama later married the Prophet So that's how the controversy ended and everyone was happy. So this was a significant event that happened during the life of the Holy Prophet
Now let's move on. Yes. Is it true that uh, if the Kaaba is rebuilt again, only a Masoom can fit the Hajjara Yes, we do have historical narrations that tell us when the Kaaba would be completely demolished and they had to fix the black stone to the Kaaba, then an infallible prophet messenger or a representative of the prophet had to actually mount it. So maybe one reason why the prophet, he himself put the black stone because if anybody else would put it, it would not be fixed, it would fall. That happened at the time of Imam Zayn al-Abideen When the black stone fell, they tried and tried to just attach it to the Kaaba, it would just not attach. It ha- there, there's a story to it why it fall. That corner, something happened, either you know, fractured or something happened to that corner where the black stone fell. Either they were, at the time I think they were expanding the Grand Mosque. So something happened, it fell. They wanted to fix it, it would not. Anything you do to it, you put nails, you put anything that fixes it, any type of paste, nothing works. Until Imam Zain al-Abideen salam, he comes, he carries the black stone and he fixes it right to the Kaaba. He just puts it and it sticks to the Kaaba. Well, people don't see the truth. The Prophet, how many miracles did he have? But did the Meccans initially believe? No. Because they tried to hide such things. You know, the ruler of his time, he said to his people, hide that. Do not let the people know about this. Possibly, I don't remember exact narrations right now, but we do have hadiths about the black stone, yes. We could verify and double check them to see what it says about them. Who said it did not move? We don't have any evidence that it moved at least in recent history. Yes, sometimes they do make renovations to the Kaaba, but not, I'm not aware, at least in my lifetime, that they actually removed the black stone. Maybe this also was something that you know, happened in that time when you had uh, a visible, infallible ma'soom. Maybe in the time of ghaybah, when the imam's absent, this may no longer apply. So Allah knows, I'm not sure about that. So maybe we could say at the time of ghaybah, this no longer applies. Yes, brother. Yes, Yazid, he attacked the Kaaba. They even raised down the Kaaba, they burned down the Kaaba, yes. So the Kaaba in the history of Islam would repeatedly be attacked by vicious people. Yazid, who supposedly, you know, according to some extremists today, they consider him to be a valid successor to the Prophet. After he killed Imam Hussein, he came, he did not come, he sent his army to Medina. They desecrated Medina completely, Um, they raped thousands of women, they killed thousands of people, then they went south to Mecca and they burned the Grand Mosque, yes. Using a catapult with fire, they burned the Holy Kaaba. So this must have been, uh, you know, before the, uh, yeah, this is definitely before the event of Karbala. Yeah, they said most of the soldiers within Yazid's army were illegitimate. Yes, they were illegitimate, that's true. So what the, there's a story that uh, Karmatis took the black stone for a number of years and then it was brought back a long time. Is there any truth to that story? Yes, this sometimes would happen. Some tribes would come, they would loot the black stone, they would take it and then you know for many many years it would be missing. That did happen a lot in history, especially you know not only in pre-Islamic Arabia but even throughout our history, that sometimes would happen. But eventually you know Allah had His plans and it would be sent back to the Kaaba. But this did actually happen. So why did 
for a number of reasons. One, you know, to have the honor of keeping that stone because some, you know, groups, some parties, some tribes wanted to act superior and say, you know, we carry the black stone. So that gives us authority, follow us. That could have been one reason. Another reason was to attack the Muslims and, you know, just to uh, infuriate them, to be to, an act of aggression against the Muslims. The Qaramataya. Mm-hmm. So it could have been the other reason that they wanted that prestige to themselves. So this happened. This actually happened a number of times where you'd see a group, they just, you know, loot the black stone. That did happen a few times in history, definitely. So in any case, this was a very significant event that happened in the Prophet's life. Now let's move on to another significant transition. Times became difficult for Bani Hashim, the family of the Prophet the economic conditions. Abu Talib, his uncle who was taking care of him, he made an offer to the Prophet. He told him, oh Muhammad, there is a very wealthy businesswoman. Her name is Khadija. And she seems to be a very good woman. A lot of people do business with her. I recommend that you do business with her. She seems to be a very good woman. So why don't you do business with her? Let's make an agreement. You'll go on business journeys. And that way you'll make a good profit as well. So one version says that Abu Talib, it was his idea. He told the Holy Prophet. Now the Prophet told him, Abu Talib, my dear uncle, I feel, you know, either embarrassed or maybe it's not so appropriate for me to go and tell her that. If she sends someone asking me to do business on her behalf and to work with her, yes. But I feel, you know, I feel it's kind of difficult for me to go and ask. Remember, this is the Prophet of God, right? He has a lot of honor, a lot of dignity. So Khadija hears about this. Someone tells her that Abu Talib has made an offer to his nephew, Muhammad. But Muhammad, he's hesitant. He's contemplating the matter. Maybe if you send him a message, He'll accept it. So she sends someone on her behalf and he offers to the Prophet that if you work with Khadija, she's willing to work with you and you can do business with her and she'll give you a good profit. She'll actually give you double what she would give others. So if someone does business with her, let's say she would give him a, uh, you know, a fixed amount of profit, she'll give you double. She had heard about the Prophet's, you know, reputation, that he was the truthful one, he was honest. So she actually liked the idea that the Prophet would work with her. So there was an agreement. Someone on her behalf came, met the Prophet, and the Prophet agreed. His first journey took him to Syria. He had made that same journey when he was a child, when Abu Talib took him. And remember the story of uh, Bahira, that Christian monk happened in Busra. The Prophet pretty much took that same route and that same path. Now Khadija sent two servants with the Prophet to help him. She told him, I'll send two servants with you. Anything you need, they're at your service. One of those servants' names was Maysara. Maysara was a slave owned by Khadija. He went along with the Prophet. So the Prophet went on that journey. He happened to make unprecedented profit. Allah gave him so much barakah and blessings. He made a lot of profit with the wealth and the goods of Khadija that he was bartering and trading. Now on his way back, some historical accounts indicate that the Prophet stopped in Busra again, that same city. Now this time, Another Christian monk, he met the Prophet, he saw him there. And when he saw the signs and he started looking at the Prophet, he told him, there's something special about you. 
I've read in the Torah and the Injil, the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there will be a final messenger who has the exact same physical descriptions that you have, the same physical features. Maysara, when he saw that, he was shocked. Okay, this is, there's, there's something very special about Muhammad that this monk is saying and witnessing. So they come back to Mecca. When they reach Mecca, one historical account tells us, Maysara tells the Prophet, O Prophet, O Muhammad, go to Khadija and tell her. Tell her that you've made this much profit. Tell her exactly what happened. You should report to her because you did business with her money. So he goes to her house, you know, she was in her chamber, she was a very wealthy woman, got, she's got a lot of servants, very nice, you know, house, upscale house, right? So he goes and he tells her about the, he gives her a brief summary of the business trip and he gives her the profit that they made. Maysara goes afterwards and tells Khadija, he tells her, look, there's something special about this guy. First of all, that Christian monk, he said this guy has some sort of signs that will make him a prophet, a king. He said something about that. Secondly, I've never met someone more honest and respectful than him. Out of all those people who've worked for you, this guy's special. So just know that. Now Khadija already knew this man was special, but now her love for him started to develop. This man is special, he's so honest, he made so much profit. Now Khadija wanted to give him double that which she would give anyone else, but the Prophet refused. He said, no, you give me whatever you give others. So she saw that he's actually very content, very humble. You know, he doesn't have that greed for money. Who would refuse that offer, especially when he's made so much money for her? So she realized there was something special about this man. So upon getting this money, the Prophet he goes to Abu Talib, his uncle, and he gives him. He says, my uncle, I've made this Prophet, this money, here. You're my guardian, you're in charge of our family, so you spend it however you see fit. Now Khadija at this point, she really was impressed by the Prophet And she was thinking that this person would be a perfect choice for me to be a spouse because the Prophet was not married. How old was the Prophet at this time? He was 25 years old. At this point he was 25 years old, so this is 15 years before the Ba'tha, before God sent him as an official messenger. Abu Talib at the same time he discusses this idea with the Prophet. Abu Talib realized Khadija's impressed and she likes the Holy Prophet so Abu Talib tells her, tells the Prophet, you know, what do you think about this idea? I have a proposal that you should go and propose to Khadija. What do you think about that? Now how old she was, we'll discuss that. We'll discuss it now, that's fine. There are a number of opinions. How old was Khadija at this point? There are several opinions. One says she was 25 years old, just like the Prophet. We actually have some Sunni historians and scholars who tell us about that, that Khadija was 25 years old. So let me give you an example of one historian who indicates that she was 25 years old. Bayhaqi, a Sunni scholar, he says that Khadija was 25 years old. Most historians would say she was 28 years old. Then you also have a number of other views that say she was 30, 35, 40, 42, but upon historical analysis we find that that's not accurate. When we examine her age when she passed away, we see that it's not possible for her to have been more than 30 years old. So she was either 25 as Bayhiqi says, or maximum 28 years old. So what you commonly hear that Khadija was 40, that's not really true. This was actually forged after Khadija, long after her, by some people who had political reasons. They wanted to show that some other wives of the Prophet, they were so special and so young and six and nine and whatever, right? And Khadija, nah, she was that old woman. 
In fact, we have a hadith, an authentic hadith, that says once the Prophet was amongst his wives in Medina, he mentioned Khadija, or someone mentioned Khadija. One of his wives, you know who, she got upset and she said, this is according to history, right? This is not something we have in our books only. She said, stop it. You mention her every single time. She was an old woman who died. That's it. The hadith says the Prophet, even though he was at the highest peak of morality and attitude, his face became red with anger. And he said, don't you ever mention Khadija negatively. When everyone denied me, she gave me. None of you gave me children, she gave me children. So don't speak like that. I don't want you ever speaking against Khadija. And oftentimes, you know, some of those women to hurt the feelings of Fatima al-Zahra because Khadija is her mother, they would say negative things about Khadija. So one of the things they came up with, oh, she was 40 when the Prophet married her and when she died, she was, I don't know, an old woman, 60, 63. That's not true. She was either 25 or 28. So either at the same age of the Prophet or just three years older than the Prophet. Yes. Was she covered or not? In pre-Islamic Arabia, while not all women did cover, but the noble women did cover, yes. A lot of the noble women, the respectful women, they did cover their hair and their body. Sometimes they would also cover their face, but sometimes they would not. Khadija, she was known to be a very beautiful woman. Everyone knew that in Mecca. She was, one of, she was the wealthiest woman and also one of the most beautiful women. So it could be the case that she did not cover her face, but she definitely covered her body. Did you have a question? The good ones, yes. Those, w w the wives of the Prophet who really cared about his feelings and who loved Khadija, yes. They would do that, but not all of them. And remember the Quran, it's, look, this is not something personal that we have. Quran Surah Al-Tahreem, open Surah Al-Tahreem and see how Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala talks about two wives of the Prophet. This is not me or a Shia scholar, this is God. He's talking about them and refer to Sunni tafsir to see who he's talking about. See how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala attacks them, how he speaks about them. Go to Surah Al-Tahreem and you'll figure that out. So no, not all the wives of the Prophet, they wanted you know, to mention her to make the Prophet happy. In fact, some of them were disturbed when they would hear about Khadija. So the Prophet, there is some disagreement how many wives he had. Some say nine, some say 13. So somewhere between 9 and 13 wives. But when he was married to Khadija, by the way, that was a monogamous marriage. She was the only woman that he married. Later on in Medina, the Prophet for various reasons, some of them spiritual, some of them social, some of them political, the Prophet married for a number of reasons. But when he was establishing that first family, he was married to only one wife. It's not clear whether he was allowed or not, but it's possible that Allah had inspired him to only stick to that marriage or because the Prophet was at the phase where he was raising a family and when you're raising a family, it's appropriate that you only have one wife. Later on, the Prophet had different goals because now he became the leader for this religion, a statesman. He had a different goal, so he married other wives. Yes, with Imam Ali السلام, we do have hadiths that say, as long as Fatima was allowed, he was not allowed to marry any other woman. That we do, but with the Prophet, it's not clear why he didn't. Was he commanded by God or he made that decision which he found wise and appropriate? Because Fatima Zahra has a special status. She's the greatest woman God ever created. She has a special status, the daughter of the greatest messenger of God. So Allah gave her that special ruling. <laughs> That's a good one. Yes, brother. 
So how old was the Prophet when Khadija died? Now she died in Amil Huzn, so he was around 52, 53. 52. So he lived how many years with her? About, no, 25 to 20, 52, 27. So he lived about 27 years. Yeah, she died right before the Hijrah. So Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salam, um, most narrations will get to that inshallah. Most narrations indicate five years uh, after the, the Ba'that she was born. And she yes. was five years old when Lady Khadija... Uh, no, she was probably seven, around seven when Lady Khadija passed away. So we'll get to that once we get to that part of the Prophet's life. So now back to Khadija, she was 25 or 28. Now was she married or not? We'll discuss that in the following course because there's a lot of disagreements whether she was you know, married or not married. Did she have children or no before the Prophet or not? That is something we'll examine. But for now, let's just end with this. So Khadija, she heard about the Prophet's you know, qualities. Abu Talib had also suggested to the Prophet. So the Prophet also found it you know, difficult to go and propose. So he told Abu Talib, let's wait, she's gonna send someone. SubhanAllah, he was inspired by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He told him she will send someone and that person, Nafisa, the daughter of Aliya. Nafisa was a relative of Khadija. Nafisa will come, and on Khadija's behalf, she will make that offer. So she comes to the Prophet, Aliyah. She's one of the relatives of Khadija. So Nafisa was a lady. Nafisa comes to the Prophet. She meets the Prophet and she tells him, Oh Muhammad, don't you want to get married? So he said, to who? She told him, well, to Khadija. He says, Khadija is interested in marriage? You know, there's a, a world of difference between us. I come from very humble origins and she's the wealthiest woman in Mecca, just her lifestyle, her house, right? Everything is so different. Is she okay with that? She's like, yes. She's okay with that. She sent me. And if you agree, right now we'll make this a done deal. I'll go and let her know and you could officially propose. He's like, let me consult my uncle Abu Talib. He consults his uncle Abu Talib. Abu Talib says, oh Muhammad, go for it. This is a very good opportunity because she's a very good woman. We know that she's a very honest, trustworthy, good woman, so you should go for it. So the Prophet accepted. They sent news to her uncle, who was pretty much not her guardian, but like the you know, big member of the family. Abu Talib went and he sought his permission, he gave the permission, she also gave him the permission, and they had the ceremony in order to do the marriage contract. So imagine this beautiful ceremony in Mecca, all the Bani Hashim, people were ecstatic, you know, this trustworthy Muhammad is now getting married. So Abu Talib, he delivers a speech, he praises Muhammad, he says Muhammad is unlike any other man, he's very, very special, and today we're doing the marriage ceremony to Khadija, the daughter of Khuwaylid. Now her father was not present because he had been killed in a battle before that. In one of the Fujjar battles, Khuwaylid, her father had been killed. So her uncle, he was you know, acting like her fatherly figure. Her father was not present. He did not make it to that day. He was killed before in one of the battles. So we see it was a very jubilant, amazing ceremony. The Prophet was happy, Abu Talib was ecstatic. Now came the time to announce the dowry. So what was the dowry? Some historical accounts say it was 400 or 500 dinars. Some say 500 dirhams. One account says 20 camels. Now who gave that dowry? There are also some accounts over here as to who gave the dowry. 
One hadith says Abu Talib, his uncle said, I will take care of the dowry, I'll pay it. When he said that, Khadija said, no, I'll pay the dowry. She's supposed to get the dowry, but look at her generosity. See how much she loved the Prophet. She says, no, whatever the dowry, the cost of it, I'll take care of it. Some people present there said, this is shocking. We've never heard a woman giving her own dowry, right? The man usually gives the dowry. How, why is she giving the dowry? Abu Talib got upset and he said, look, this man's different. Don't compare this man to your man. Your men, they have to give the dowry. But my nephew Muhammad, he's so special, the woman come chasing after him. <laughs> now he didn't say this exact wording, but he said, the woman wants him. The woman come after him. That's how special he is. So Abu, Abu Talib really just loved the Prophet and he took every opportunity to show the status of the Prophet. So they agreed. Now one hadith says, the Prophet says, I'll take care of the dowry, it's 20 camels. However, through his uncle, just to respect the formalities and the protocol, through his uncle they gave the dowry. So it's possible that the Prophet, he gave the dowry through his uncle, but then Khadija, out of her own generosity, she says, no, you know, I don't, uh, it's not that I, I don't accept the dowry, I accept the dowry, but I would like to fund it and pay for it. And that wonderful marriage, uh, you know, took place. And we have a lot of interesting stories, you know, surrounding this marriage. Khadija was very, you know, anxious. Remember, this is a very important uh, step in her life. Many men, many men had asked her hand before that. Abu Sufyan, Abu Jahl, I don't know who. Many of those prominent Meccan men, they had come to her, she had refused. So this man was special. Now she saw a lot of indications that this prophet, this man was going to be a very important individual. For example, one hadith says once before this incident, before the wedding, uh, she saw it in a dream that the sun was circling Mecca and it fell in her house. So she went to Waraka ibn Nawfal. Waraka ibn Nawfal was either her, her cousin or her uncle. Some say he was, he was her uncle, some say he was her cousin. Waraka ibn Nawfal was a sage, he was a wise man. So she went to him and she told him, explain to me, what does this dream mean? He said, this dream means that you'll marry someone very special who will be revered by the world, a prophet or a king. So this was an indication that this wedding was going to be special. Once also the prophet passed by the house of Khadija, there was a Jewish scholar who was sitting, you know, in that gathering that Khadija was present at and the Jewish scholar, when he saw the Prophet and the descriptions of the Prophet, the physical features, he said to Khadija, this man is special, this man is different. In our books, I've read that the final man, who will be the greatest messenger of God, who will unite all these tribes, fits this description. So Khadija had all sorts of indications, especially Maysara, what he told her about that monk. She knew that this man was going to be special, so she really adored the Prophet, she loved the Prophet and you know she was actually the one who proposed. Yes Abu Talib did suggest that to the Prophet but she was the one who proposed. And this tells you that in the religion of God it doesn't have to be the man who always proposes, right? Khadija sets a beautiful example in which if a Muslim lady, a Muslim respected sister knows of a good brother who has the proper akhlaq and qualities, she can propose. I know in our societies it's aib, right? It's, it's, it's not appropriate, but if we want to follow the footsteps of the Prophet and his wife Khadija, there's no aib in it. But what's that brother? I was like, not only that, the lady would also pay the dowry too. Yes, that's a good one. Not only does she propose, but she'll take care of the dowry as well. Excellent. Waraka bin Nawfal, we'll talk about him later when we talk about Revelation because there's a lot of uh, controversy around him. Some sources indicate he was a Christian, wise man, you know, he's the one who supposedly reassured the Prophet through Khadija that he's the Prophet of God. We have some observations about that. A lot of this probably was fabricated for reasons we'll examine later. But it seems that, you know, from historical accounts, he was a wise man. Maybe that part we can confirm. Yes, brother. 
That will come later, yes. Because Imam Ali was born after the Prophet was married to Khadija. So we'll examine this chronologically, inshallah. So this marriage takes place. Uh, yes. Uh, who, how, how did Khadija, how did she accumulate so much wealth? Like, was she like her own, like, did she like start her own business? First of all, she was uh, quite smart and intelligent. No so, father, yes, she did in receive inheritance, definitely. Um, but not everybody who receives inheritance, you know, is able to develop that wealth. And remember, in pre-Islamic Arabia, um, a woman would not inherit from her father. So, really it was based on her own efforts and intelligence that she gained all that wealth. Uh, she lived on her own, yes. She had an uncle who was there for her, but she lived on her own. She had actually a very fancy house. Some hadiths describe, you know, the contents of her house. You know, the fine, I don't know, Persian uh, artifacts. She, she, the hadith describes it, you know, the, a lot of the very expensive items that she had in that house. And it's very interesting that a woman like that, you know, would uh, just fall in love with a man who was so, so humble. And Abu Talib, in the speech that he gave, at the wedding, he actually does refer to that. He says, people, don't look at Muhammad from the outside and say, oh, he's poor, he's humble, he doesn't have much money. He's got something that even the richest of the people don't have. He's got something special. So Abu Talib, you know, would make sure that he would emphasize this point. And this is actually what Khadija found interesting in the Prophet. She was not interested in any materialistic aspect. She had all those. She had what any woman would want. She had the status, the wealth, she had servants. You know, the, you know some hadiths say how many servants she had, how many slaves she owned. So she was a very wealthy, one, uh, wealthy woman. She had all, anything that a woman would want, but there was something missing in her life. And that was the spirituality that the Holy Prophet Muhammad would give her later in our next course we'll examine you know whether she was married or not whether she had children or not and we'll see how her life changed after this marriage in two ways spiritually it skyrocketed but financially especially after the religion of Islam she really was one of the most Amazing people who sacrificed in the history of humankind for the religion of Islam. She lost all of that physical status, her reputation, all the money, everything that she had, she lost it for the sake of Allah. She didn't lose it. She gained it. But if you look at it from a materialistic standpoint, she did lose all of that. So this was a very, very big sacrifice for her. Yes, her priorities did def definitely change. So we'll continue uh, this discussion, inshallah. Wa sallallahu ala Muhammadin wa alihi tahirin.